0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week you need to fall in line and follow the teachings of the master. The master of the bitch, that is. That's right, our guest is Courtney Summers, YA superstar, famed creator of unlikable heroines, and yet the self-proclaimed master of the bitch. Following the success of her 2018 novel, Sadie, Courtney is back with a brand new work, The Project, and it's getting all the buzz. The book follows a young woman, Lowe, as she investigates a New York-based cult that has swallowed up her sister. This is far from your standard cult novel, though. As Courtney explains, she wants to get away from the exploitation and the obvious horror, and instead consider why people search for belonging in such dark places, and whether we would be impervious to the project's allure. As you'll hear, the book made me reconsider a lot of things, including my own sense of susceptibility and my long-held prejudice against the YA classification. Courtney more than puts me right on that score. So, come with me to New York State. There's a tent in a field, and inside there's some soul-saving going on. Leave your sense of self at the door, and let's talk scared. Scared. So, hi, Courtney, and welcome to Talking Scared.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. It's good to be here.
0: It's a great day. We finally kicked the furious orange out of the White House.
1: Yes, I feel like I can breathe a little, you know, especially today. It was so nice to see.
0: Yeah, indeed. By the time this goes to air, it will be old news and we'll have had probably two weeks of the Biden administration and things will feel calm again. But right now, yeah, it feels like a global exhalation. Yes, (laughs) Where are you speaking to us from today?
1: I'm coming to you from Ontario, Canada.
0: Excellent. Uh, Canada's close to my heart. I always like a Canadian guest. I think Canada's got its own particular spooky atmosphere. Yeah. But yeah, today we are all global citizens, and we've both torn ourselves away from Joe Biden's inauguration for this chat. But considering the day, how better to commemorate the ending of an insidious cult (laughs) run by a self-deifying figurehead by talking about your book. It's it's called The Project. Yes. And it's out from Wednesday Books on February 2nd. What can you tell us about it?
1: The Project is a book about an aspiring young journalist who is determined to save her sister from a cult by writing an expose on them, but that puts her directly in the path of its leader. And as you can imagine, that goes very well for her. (laughs) That's my pitch.
0: (laughs) That is quite the elevator pitch for a very complex book. Right, so where to start with this? Because I always tend to start broad with big themes and then go specific. Um, But you are actually our first YA author, young adult for those who don't know that. That's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting because I I have had my my controversial comments about YA in the past.
1: Oh no, are we enemies? Are we friends or foes?
0: (laughs) Who knows? We'll find out, won't we? (laughs) Let's talk about the broader themes to begin with. Over the last year and in in the year going ahead, there's been a bit of a vogue for stories about cults and communes. We've got Redder Days, which is a novel coming out later in this year. There was Craig DeLouis, The Children of Red Peak. Last year he was a guest on the show. I think that, you know, this this cultish vibe may have something to do with our current political tribalism. But I'm wondering what's prompted you to delve into the subject.
1: You know, I was, when when I decided I wanted to write the project, it was like the summer of 2018. And I was in New Orleans at the time for a, a library thing. And my editor happened to be there too. And we rarely get to talk about my books in person because she's in New York and I'm in Canada. And I, I remember sitting down across from her, and I'm like, I think I want to write a book about a cult and I want you to talk me out of it <laughs> because it just, it's such a difficult subject to tackle because, of, you know, by very virtue of being a cult novel, you kind of know where they end. I was like, how can I work something that is so predictable from the outset? That's what it felt like to me. Because when we hear about cults in news and the media, it's always at their point of ruin. Everything has gone horribly wrong. And then I realized, oh, that's the thing that I want to I want to work with, getting to that point of ruin, of, of making people step back from the wreckage and, and try to see the beginning and their own place in the beginning. Because most people don't believe they join a cult. It's really easy to stand outside a cult's final moments and be like, of course not. I would never walk into that. But I don't know. I think everyone would join a cult. I think it started out, I wanted to be talked out of it. And then I wanted to prove I could talk everyone else into it. So on some level, it's like a spite novel. I don't know. A lot going on.
0: A spite novel. Excellent. So you you've said something there that really rings true with me after reading this book. Because I'm one of these people that always say things like, you know, oh, marketing doesn't influence me. Adverts don't. I mean, I'm one of those annoying people. Yeah. <laughs> and I always look at things like, you know, Heaven's Gate and Jonestown. And I'm like, those people cannot have been sane. They cannot have been OK when they got into that position. Right. But reading this, you've, you've said something that I hadn't thought of, which is yet exactly. We only really become aware of cults once you know, the shit has hit the fan, right. so to speak. Yeah. And yeah. reading this novel, there were whole swathes of it where I was like, I would join that organization today.
1: <laughs> well, I feel like I succeeded.
0: That <laughs> they're throwing off all the things that, you know, make life pretty difficult. All the, you know, the, the crass capitalism and the pressures and the cruelty of life. They're throwing it away for genuine social good. And I was like, yeah, I, I would join this organization. Why did you want to investigate that?
1: It felt like a challenge. I mean, once I'm not afraid of the challenge anymore, I, I want to rise to meet it. And uh, when I started like reading broadly about cults, I just I couldn't get a foothold into the whole mentality of them because it still felt too removed from me. And then something clicked when I started reading about Jonestown in my preliminary research and I, and you had mentioned Jonestown and, and I think they're a really good example because when jo- when um, People's temple started, it was, they were doing so much good. Like Jim Jones, he believed in civil rights. He believed everyone should, you know, be fed, be sheltered, um, have health care. Um, he believed in equality and he brought in so many people on that platform. And, and obviously it was later perverted by his madness and his self-destruction and, and his selfishness and his greed, but he appealed to people's better nature. And I, I really... I wanted to dig into that because we just, I I mean, I like the cult stories where, you know, it's the the cult and the compound that is predicting the end of the world and everything like that. But it's still, there's a, there's like a a satisfaction in in being able to see something that you can't relate to and sort of like, I don't want to say satisfaction, but you know, when you're watching a spectacle and you're entertained by it, I wanted to strip that, away from a story about a cult like that's what I really wanted to dig into I did not want the sensationalism I didn't want the spectacle of the cult I wanted it to feel as real and as human as possible I think that was the whole thing I was like I'm so used to seeing cult stories that are are just sort of fodder for entertainment and I know it's like on, on one level my job to be entertaining but I want to make people ask why they're engaging with the media that they're engaging with and what their reasons are for their expectations. And this felt like a, a real way I could subvert not the narrative of a cult novel, because like I said, I think they generally only end one way, but the execution of a cult novel.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned expectations because the project has popped up on my radar because it's it's on a number of prominent kind of horror books to look out for in 2021. Right. Yeah, without putting off our listeners <laughs> because <laughs> it is a it is a very dark novel. I wonder what your thoughts are on that horror classification because it's certainly not horror in the way that we have come to think of a horror depiction of a cult.
1: Right. I mean it's it's horrific and it's tragic. Like I, I'm not ever going to be mad to see my novel on a horror on a horror list. Like if people think that it fits there for whatever their criteria is, that's fine with me. Like I think a lot of terrible things happen in the book that horrify me that I read about. I don't think it's you know uh, a horror novel by the traditional sense of the word. It's also being marketed as a thriller, and I I don't think it's a traditional thriller either. I I think of it I call it an emotional thriller. So I wonder if I should call it like an emotional horror novel. <laughs>
0: Well, that's amazing. But that that was the phrase I was about to use. I was about to say this novel is horrifying in its emotional capacity. Thank you. It leaves you kind of winded when you finished it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> in the mental telepathy that, that writing and reading is, that has come across very clear.
1: Whatever, However a reader finds my book, and if it sets, you know, if it makes a certain set of expectations for them, I'm either going to get um, penalized for it not being the book that they said it was or people are going to you know accept the book that they got and and tell me what they thought of that I, but that's like true of any book that you release you'll either meet expectations you'll defy them or or readers will have to be willing to meet you halfway it's just the whole thing <laughs> I think about it a lot
0: basically to, to back that up in a way obviously it's a podcast about as I always use the phrase horror and horror adjacent fiction right because I've been doing this now for you know what Four or five months, and I've read a lot of horror novels about a lot of ghosts and a lot of monsters and a lot of demons, <laughs> and and they, you know, some of them are really scary. But the three books that have got under my skin in in various ways are Ruman Alarms*, *Leave the World Behind*, *Will Dean's Amazing*, *The Last Thing to Burn*, and *The Project*.
1: I really want to read that because of you. *The, the Last Thing to Burn* is it like? Tell me more. No, <laughs> should, should I be saying that on like a podcast about the project? But I was like, that sounds good, and it's all because of you.
0: I'll tell you off air, But it is an incredible novel. Okay. Um, <laughs> one of the best I've read in like the last ten years. It's it's insanely good. But your book has done a similar thing. It's got to me in all of the ways that have got nothing to do with traditional horror.
1: That makes me
0: happy. Whereas Will Dean's book is all about claustrophobia and tension. Yours is about emotion, um, and the way you write. The, the lives of these two sisters and the way they love each other, but, you know, can't be together. And without giving any spoilers, it reaches various kind of heartbreaking crescendos. Explain that to me. What was the thought behind that?
1: Well, I mean, I do. I like I, At the end of the day, I think the project is uh, a book designed to... Like honor the experiences of cult victims and survivors. I cannot remove the humanity from the story. And if I did, I feel very bad about myself at the end of the day. And I think to successfully convey that on the page, I have to get as close to and into the lives of these two girls as I possibly could. And my writing has always tended to lean to the like very narrow emotional focus, which I think that's what tends to resonate with my readers as they follow me across my career because I started out with very um, high school books and then I switched and did a zombie book and then I did like Sadie which came before the project and now I'm doing cults but like the the emotional through line of my novels is, is very consistent I just want to make people feel like they're there and I want them to be upset <laughs> like I just I always want to devastate someone that's my that's my calling card
0: <laughs> I mean, that that's a great line it's a great like, marketing angle I just want to devastate somebody. I I think if read by certain people in certain contexts with certain experiences, this novel could be something that is either wholly uplifting or wholly devastating. Um,
1: There is no in between.
0: (laughs) No, no, it's it's, it's a gut punch of a novel. It's a phrase I use often that, but in this case, it really is a gut punch of a novel, which coming to the question, therefore, about its classification as YA.
1: (laughs) Here we go.
0: So I'm going to try and walk a tightrope here because I have, I have said some things in the past that may come back to haunt me.
1: Let's fight, Neil.
0: <laughs> First of all, I am right. Yeah, this book is a, a piece of YA fiction, at least in terms of the way it's being marketed.
1: Yes, it is, it is categorized as young
0: adult. Right. I am astounded by that. In, in the way that I'm astounded, the, sort of the thing that I always think, you know, the, have you ever seen the film The Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe, the horror film? Right.
1: I've, oh, yeah, I did see it. Yeah. Sorry, I was, I was like trying to think.
0: Yeah, so that's a 12, right? And I always think, like, that—that that is a 12 because it doesn't quite tick any of the boxes that would make it an adult movie. But it's more scary than most, like, 18s that you will watch or most x rated that you will watch. I think the same about your book. It, it doesn't, perhaps, tiptoe into any overt adult area. Right. But in what it does, it's actually more more cruel and devastating, to use your phrase, than a lot of adult <laughs> books. So... I didn't understand why or how it was possibly YA. (laughs) Let
1: let me get my marketing team on the phone. No. (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, I am a young adult author. I've been working and I've been writing young adult books for over a decade. I feel that there's something classically YA about my voice. There's a certain immediacy to it. But at the same time, I understand why people are like, why is this YA? Well, I kind of understand it. Actually... Wait, like, scrap everything I just said. <laughs> okay, categorizations are there to make life easier, I think for people shelving the books. And I'm I'm a young adult author. I have been writing young adult books for over 12 years. I think that's part of it. I think the project is a YA novel. I think it's an emotionally sophisticated novel. I think that YA novels can be that. Um my work is more upper and crossover YA. So, it does have appeal to adult audiences. Um and it does have appeal to teenagers obviously i've heard over the course of my career from like readers as young as 12 who are going through like the kind of horrific things in their lives that would make my work resonate with them which is heartbreaking and i've heard from readers who are like at the limit of the teenage years like they're 19 and they've loved my books and i know that i have adult readers and the only people who ever ask me who am i writing these books for are adults and never the teenagers, which is interesting.
0: What can I say? <laughs> Very much, yeah, because I think it's, it's that prurient thing looking back, oh God, my kid can't read this. And I would just like to say to any anybody listening who who I may have put off by saying this is extreme, your your kids can read this book. <laughs> it's fine. It's just more challenging than I thought YA could be. Because what, what I've realised is that I, I, I sit here, and my opinion was always that there was absolutely nothing wrong with YA fiction, but that the the categorization meant that authors had to kind of curtail their ambition. That was my my previous thinking. Right. But the two books that have shown me how wrong that is, um, is yours and Jeremy Robert Johnson's The Loop.
1: Of oh, course. Cool.
0: Both of which are, you know, written for, as you say, a crossover audience, but feature very kind of strong YA themes, but are both in their own way really powerful. So Have you ever felt like the categories impose any limits on what you can do or where you can go with a story?
1: I have never felt constrained in that way. Um, I have an editor who lets me do pretty much whatever I want, and i I refuse to compromise. It's I mean, like I'll compromise for the sake of telling a good story, but I won't compromise to um, meet anyone's perceptions of what YA should or shouldn't be after the book releases that people want to impose those constraints on it which is where I think the question comes from like um adult gatekeepers or adult readers like, like I said they question the appropriateness of whether or not the project should be YA and I find that uh disheartening like they don't know what teenager they'd hand the book to uh or what teenager it's for and it, if a teen reader came up to them and said I love dark edgy upper YA I love YA with Veronica Mars sensibilities I love slow burn thrillers I love cult books I love reading up I love Courtney Summers I love Sadie like when you hand them the project you know, I really don't know how to engage with this like argument that the project shouldn't be YA because it upholds a certain kind of I don't know, it like it intentionally overlooks obvious connections for why it is. And I think to start questioning like the the what is a YA book and how can this be YA, like it, it reinforces a certain kind of I don't know if like privilege is the word that you know, demands we ignore the teen experiences and how varied and diverse that actually is now like look at the world teenagers are inheriting look at the man who just left the white off the white house like I don't know I just think they can handle anything and I don't think I've been constrained by that but I think that adults once the book is out there certain types of adult readers are like well you should have been constrained this should be more neatly something that I can understand as a YA novel
0: what it's made me realise in, in asking these questions, and I'm sorry if I am furthering that redundant conversation.
1: No, no, I think this is like, this is good to talk out.
0: <laughs> what it's made me re- realise is that I've been having all these opinions about YA from a position of complete ignorance, because I think the actual last book I read that was, you know, YA was The Hunger Games. So I've been that typical guy having opinions on things I don't understand.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's it's, the Hunger Games was such a catalyst for why like that was that ushered in like Twilight, the Hunger Games, um, they spoke to why it's golden age. And I actually think, you know, if they hadn't been published, like you wouldn't see the progression of of what the genre like the genre has become because I remember everyone freaking out about kids killing each other in an arena. I mean, when you think of the Hunger Games like on paper, like they're killing each other in an arena. That's that's amazing. That's like <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne
0: Collins. Now I can do whatever I want. Yeah. I mean, I I just think the world has become, the adult world, has become increasingly kind of repressive and prurient towards kids. Yeah. Because if you think about the 80s, horror films.
1: Yeah.
0: Halloween. I watched Halloween again today, right? And you're watching it. I love it. Yeah. yeah, I needed a break for all the optimism, so I watched um, (laughs) Halloween. and. He He's killing kids. It's a man with a, with a knife killing kids. And that film is clearly made for kids. All right, it might be marketed officially for adults, but that is a date movie yeah. for kids, right? Right. I'm getting a bit Angry Man shouts at Cloud now, but there was a thing in The Guardian in the UK where they said that a lot of films that were once kind of like parental guidance classification in the 80s have now been graded up to a 12 or 15 because of changing standards. Just as you're saying, we've got a guy in the White House who is talking about grabbing women by the pussy, using the rhetoric he does. Um, and all of a sudden, we can't, we can't show kids something that is a little bit challenging. Yeah, yeah there's a dissonance there that, that boggles my mind. And I feel like adults are are pulling up the ladder behind them with this stuff. I was reading Stephen King at 11. You know what I mean? These days, that'd be frowned upon.
1: I mean, there's climate change. I mean, we've got a lot of... We've put a lot of baggage on teens. I think they can handle the Goonies or... The
0: project. That's, we've, you've corrected my thinking. For the future of the project, this may be a, a fulcrum in the, in the future of the podcast. Yeah, but let's okay. talk about your book. Okay. One of its greatest strengths, and we, we've addressed this slightly, is the way that you keep the reader guessing as to the actual nature of the project. The project being the organisation that, that is the cult. And there are times in the book when you see it as a truly sinister entity. And times when you can kind of wholly understand its appeal. And the same goes for Lev, who is its figurehead. Right. For a significant portion of the novel, he seems genuinely enlightened and and better than us mere mortals. (laughs) Was it important to you to maintain that poise for as long as possible?
1: Yes, it was. uh, That was actually one of the more challenging things. And it was a failure of the first draft that I didn't do that because um, I I kept trying to think when's the moment like the mask falls off? Like when is the moment there that everything is truly bad and I, I just realized like it can't. Lev will always believe what he's saying. He will never think that he's a bad man and everything that he does is going to be filtered through the lens of of what he believes is his divine purpose and what he believes is his, is his inherent goodness. So that can never really once drop. Like even toward the end, I won't spoil it, but he's he's never approaching anyone from what he would consider a place of hate just like love and being their savior and I think like he genuinely believed in the tenets of the project like he wanted to help the world but he he wanted to be its God too
0: was he modeled on any particular figure I mean was Jim Jones the the main influence or, or was it something else
1: he was definitely inspired by Jim Jones I think he was a little less uh, Jim Jones got he got so absurd at some points, And it, that's just that's another that speaks to the power of Jim Jones, though, because he would say the most ridiculous things, um, you know, like he'd been reincarnated and like his sex would save the world and things like that. He would just blurt them out at sermons and people would be like eating it up because, you know, for every absurd thing that he said, he'd say like a, a true thing. So you, you wouldn't know him from down. But he was he was vaguely modeled on Jim Jones. There are a couple nods to Jim Jones. Warren is um, jim jones middle name uh, jim jones lived in and uh, he grew up in indiana he was born in indiana and there was another thing that i kind of filtered in through his perspective so he was like the primary source but not like but just in a very light way like it's it's all very lightly inspired by people's temple but Lev is wholly his own thing i,
0: I do have a few quite young listeners and if you've never heard of jim jones or jonestown um it is worth researching just as a slight aside there is a gr- Obviously, one of the biggest podcasts in the world is the last podcast on the left. Um, and if you can stand the particular brand, a very grim humour, their their series on on Jonestown is is the place to go for the full story. Uh, Jonestown is a is a is a mess. It's a whole it's a whole mess of stuff.
1: I did a I did a lot of re- research into Jonestown, like a lot of reading, a lot of uh documentaries and then i i went to uh, alternative considerations of people's temple in jonestown which is a website and the fbi documents and the sermons and blah blah and there was this one book i read and they're like once you start researching jonestown you get like sucked into the jonestown vortex you just never leave and i i still reading about jonestown like i don't need to because the book's done but it's like i'm in it now it's just so tragic and fascinating and 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 heartbreaking and it's hard to turn away from
0: it's a, it's, it's a very, very extreme outcome of what can go wrong when, when these things get out of hand. It's it's a chilling story. There's a great film, actually, a found footage film by Ty West called The Sacrament, which is is basically a very loose adaptation.
1: Oh, right. Was that the, uh, the... Wait, why do I want to say Vice was involved in that? I don't think they were. Or were they?
0: The, the characters are supposed to be Vice journalists oh, okay. who go to this... End days cult, and it's basically they're there for the last days of Jonestown. It's, it's it's pretty grim. It's not your traditional horror film. There are no jump scares. It's just a slow, right. inexorable decline. Um, but you mentioned there in passing about how Jim Jones said his his sex could cha- change the world, and um, and sex plays <laughs> inevitably plays a part in in the project. Right, there is a, a kind of an eroticism to Lev. Yes, but for me, at least for me. It's a sexuality that slides towards the sinister. So there's a brief quote I picked out here that you wrote about where I'm not going to say who or when or what, but he's, he's in an intimate moment with a character. And it's described as, quote, he reaches forward, putting his hands on her shoulders, then traces his fingertips over her collarbone. He leans forward, bringing his mouth to her neck. I be like being a little bit literal, but there's something of the kind of the vampire there, the controlling demon lover. <laughs> He, he is quite a, a, a sinister sexual figure
1: I mean yes <laughs> yeah he's very enigmatic he's very charismatic and he's and he's that's with everyone like a uh, I don't think I got the opportunity to really explore how the way love is with like BLO is how he is with on some level to everyone he is always going to make feel people feel like um they're the center of his universe and he's going to express that physically. There's a bonus chapter in the Barnes and Noble uh, edition that is coming out on February 2nd. And it has, and it's a chapter that sort of uh, touches on that too. But I think in a moment where he's taking so much control He's also give, granting like the illusion of it. Like you are a wanted person. You are the one that I'm bestowing this attention on, this very intimate and important attention. So you will suddenly feel elevated to God's status too. Like that's that's basically his MO.
0: And it, it really works. He seduced me, as I say, like for, for whole Good. sections of the book, I was just kind of like, yeah, this guy's the real deal. I, I would follow this follow this man and I'm not an easily led person or I don't think I am. I am not quite know if you did it because obviously I read it knowing it's a goddamn cult.
1: <laughs> this is very good for my ego. Thank you.
0: <laughs> this is a service I provide. Um <laughs> The flip side, you mentioned B and Low there in in your answer. So just to clarify for those who haven't read the book, B and Low are our, let's say, protagonist and secondary protagonists, and they're sisters who are separated by this cult. B vanishes into the cult and Low goes in search of her in its simplest form. Yeah? Yeah low is a shall we say a challenging character
1: <laughs> see everyone when people say that about my my protagonist I'm like tell me more because I I, I just th- maybe this is the only way I can write that I, I love them I, I don't feel they're challenging at all I know I know exactly how they'll get to readers but I just it always is a little bit surprising. I know that they're unlikable. I know that I call myself the master of the bitch, but by the time I'm done a book, I'm just like, I love these girls. What's your problem?
0: <laughs> I'm a big fan of the phrase master of the bitch. I'll be honest with you, right? When I when I saw your social media and I saw the phrase master of the bitch, I was like, oh god, she's going to be a real strident angry. <laughs> Take him to task on every claim I make. And then instead you're this really kind of generous. Oh good. Right let's let's deal with this unlikable thing right because as you say this okay. is the thing that kind of dug your reputation that you are the person who writes unlikable protagonists yeah i don't think that sadie certainly in your previous novel and i don't think Lo or b are unlikable protagonists
1: i i don't really think they are
0: either but isn't they're challenging yeah Be- and i'm and And I'm wondering how much of a kind of male chauvinism I'm bringing to the mix here, because there's a whole thing with Lowe in her job, right? Demanding this promotion.
1: Oh my god. (laughs) Okay, I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad because I'm at it. (laughs) Oh well, because I'm already getting early reviews that are like, can you believe she? She thought she deserved a promotion. Like this entitled 19 year old thinks that she can be a journalist. I'm going to say a few things in Lowe's defense. First of all, <laughs> she's working for a man named Paul Tyndale. Who's, he comes up himself by breaking the rules. He doesn't do anything he's supposed to do to get where he is. He breaks the rules. He gets a lucky break. He gets handed his career, basically. I mean, he earns it, but he gets to flow every conventional path to earn it. Like So he's got a lot of male privilege there. He picks Lowe out of a, a college um, lecture And he chooses her for his assistant and he knows that she's like starry eyed for him. I'm sure he knows that he has, uh, she has a crush on him. Like I think she does like she never outwardly admits it. I think he feels really good about hiring her because she's 19 years old. She's like got this scar on her face. She's got a tragic past. He thinks he's doing her a favor. Meanwhile, she's thinking he knows that I'm his biggest fan, he knows that I want his career, um, He's, he's hired me against all odds. Why shouldn't I progress up the ladder like he did? And then there's the fact that she is 19 years old anyway. So it's like, there's a certain kind of hubris that comes with that. And finally, <laughs> she's traumatized. She's so traumatized. She lost her like her entire family, except for her sister in a car accident. And then her sister leaves her in a cult. Have you ever had like so many bad things happen? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be these kind of bad things. But do you ever just have like this, like a, an incredible run of bad luck and you're kind of like, okay the world owes me now (laughs) like they owe me something good and I can't imagine her not having a certain level of entitlement tied to her trauma whereas she's gone through so much and she's been finally offered this really nice thing to want to take it the rest of the way when like she's been denied and lost so much like she just wants what her boss has and how he got it she's been through a lot (laughs) And that's my defence of
0: low. Thank you. That is <laughs> a valid defence. And as I say, I like law and I like her determination. But yeah, I was reading it thinking, getting really kind of annoyed at her actions. And then also questioning, is this me being a man who's used to being a man at work? And Is this exposing things about myself that I, I shouldn't be comfortable with? I, I, I don't know. But what what it did make me think about is the, the, the whole use of the term unlikable in relation to characters because it seems such an odd word to me to use for a fictional character because
1: it
0: it seems to imply that there are characters we're supposed to root for and we can only do that if they are wholly good with no flaws Another the other thing is, it seems to only apply to female characters. Because yeah. with men, we have the ever-popular anti-hero. And I'm a sucker for an anti-hero. You know, like, oh...
1: I love them too.
0: Someone hurts a woman, a guy gets to go and do whatever the hell he wants and be all damaged and be essentially a non-functioning human as long as he's tough and has his own code. You know what I mean? But I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't really think about reading a female anti-hero. They're always described as unlikable or difficult or, as I call it, a challenging, you know, do you think there is a double standard?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I, my very first book, um, Crafted to Be, I wrote because I was getting rejections on the novel. I wrote before that saying that my female protagonist was too unlikable, but the male protagonist was fine. And he was, he was making equally terrible decisions as the girl in that book. So I'm like, well, fine. If you think she's unlikable, I'm going to write the most unlikable female character that I can imagine. And we'll see what... I don't... like That sounds like self-sabotage, but it was, again, spite. Spite seems to work in my favor. <laughs> so it's just been like a progression of... I've just consistently made that choice because I know people come in with a certain set of expectations when it comes to female characters, whether or not they consciously... Um, they are consciously aware of that. As soon as a, a female character just starts pushing a little bit, bit against a, a a norm or whatever, people get uncomfortable. And when you're uncomfortable, you want away from something. You don't want it near you. So you just start like, like, this is what's wrong with that, that I don't like it. Not what's wrong with me that I don't like it. It's this is what's wrong with that. So it's like just constantly navigating that space. And I wrote, I did Sadie um, before the project and Sadie is a book about a girl who goes on the hunt for her little sister's killer and I don't want to spoil the ending but it didn't look good for Sadie at the end and everyone really like seemed to like her she's challenging but everyone liked her And, and then so when I did low I'm like well I hope people like her too because she's been through a lot and her she's responding in a similar way to Sadie I think where the trauma is dictating a lot of her behavior and and people just started coming at me about this job thing. Like, that's like, that's what they're really picking on love about. And I was like, what's the difference here? And then I was like, oh, Sadie died.
0: <laughs> I wonder, even though they are both books about girls going in search of their sisters, Sadie's cleaves much more to the 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 standard of like, you know, a a guy-led piece of fiction. You know, it's it's a bit more driven uh, it's a bit more like the guy like, J- Liam Neeson in Taken have a particular you know what sense I skills. think it is
1: though I don't think it's that I think it's that she's leaning more toward uh, an expectation we have for women is Sadie self-sacrificing she has no other life or desires or love except like her duty and then she dies for it because I love Sadie like I'm glad people are rooting for her and I'm glad they felt the tragedy in her story like I was trying to make a point about the way we commodify uh, like true crime fiction and and or not fiction true crime and how uh, we been we turn it into bingeable content usually there's violence against women at the heart of those stories you know I wanted people to think about that but when I started getting some of these early comments on the project i just i started really thinking about Sadie. as like I genuinely be, believe people love that message and and I don't think every reader who who reads Sadie and and resonates with it is like I like it because she died. I just think it's an, another interesting layer to consider in this like, current culture, society, whatever, the way ingrained bias is. There's a lot to unpack.
0: I mean, there is this whole thing, isn't minute about trying to get away from narratives where a dead woman is the catalyst for the action. Even now, it's still everywhere. It's like the a perfectly viable reason for a man to do whatever he wants to do.
1: To that, though, I think, like, maybe there is something that aligns with that whole trajectory, like, pop-culturally speaking, that people... Like, maybe it was a combination, you know, the whole Liam Neeson vibe, but also that it was so self-sacrificing. Maybe there's, like, a perfect combination there between two audiences. That's why Sadie did so well.
0: So what has the reaction been like to Low, apart from this thing with a job? Are people liking her? Because I liked her.
1: I think, well... (laughs) Well, Neil liked her. So that's the reaction to Lil. Now, actually, I don't think it's been a terrible reaction to Lil. Actually, she has many more supporters than detractors. But there was like this highly specific feedback about the job thing. And it's come up several times. And I was like, unexpected. But okay. I just, I get a kick out of it, honestly. Like readers are allowed to take whatever they want from the book. They can be mad at her because she's got an entitlement problem. It, depending on what type of reader you are and where that annoyance is coming from, it's something where it's worth asking yourself. Maybe you truly just think she's
0: entitled, but why? One of the main themes that comes up again and again in the novel is the idea of identity and sort of self-definition. Yep. Early in the novel, Ro has an accident. um, And when she wakes up from a coma, she asks continually, who am I? And that struggle continues in kind of literal and metaphorical ways. Until the very end when she finds a particularly poignant sense of a way to regard herself, to define herself. It's a really nice coda to that thread. But at the time, she's facing this organization that demands, you know, like all cults do, that she cast off everything that defined her before she joined.
1: Right.
0: So what are you trying to say about identity and definition in this book? Oh
1: God. (laughs) Well, I mean, Big question. (laughs) Yeah. Do we have a year? No. Um, Low sense of self is constantly wavering. She doesn't know who she is, even when she thinks she does. She has very little to hold on to. And that in some ways might have been her saving grace at the same time, because, you know, she had to let go of an idea that she didn't even really have a a firm hold on. And it, it wasn't until, what little was left of her was being taken away that she started to realize there was anything there worth fighting for. But it, it was a commentary and contrast to what B was going through. Like B always seemed to like, it, the whole thing was to invert their narratives. I sound like I didn't know what I was doing. I'm just like, I'm trying to, I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> exactly. I was like, I mean, it's a through line. It's it's cults come for your sense of self. Basically. I just wanted to reflect that on the page. I, I do everything accidentally. <laughs>
0: Well, she she suffers a kind of similar version of that at work, where she's constantly kind of put in this box of being just the um, receptionist, the girl just answers the phone, you know. So, I mean, I, I, I did wonder whether you're going for a parallel between Lev has, as leader of the cult and Paul as head of the magazine she works for, because they're quite similar characters. They both have yeah. power and personal charisma and the ability to define others, and it just feels like this girl is in a, just a constant flux of trying to claw some sense of who she is out of the this system where everyone is just wanting want yeah. to put her in a box.
1: Oh, okay, I would say, like, be really stripped of her sense of self by leaving. Like, she completely um, removed any sense of, of worth. Because, um, like, I was a sister and now I'm not a sister anymore. So she's... Uh, Lo's big thing is I want to I make a mark on the world with who I am with my writing. And so she finds an opportunity in SVO, but Paul won't let her write. So the difference between Paul and Lev is that Paul's, or Lev is like, I see your potential. I see that you can be someone. And, and Paul's like, you're you're just not there yet. You're never gonna get there. So I mean, who are you going to naturally be drawn to? It's the person that tells you they see you when you can't see yourself.
0: Interesting, yeah. I still think I joined the cult, it's, it's worrying to be honest.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, Paul won't give you a promotion. He won't give you a raise. <laughs> he's a bad boss and love is a good cult leader, I guess.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's a particularly slow burning novel and that's, that's, that's not a criticism. Only last week I was talking to CJ Tudor um, who said about, you know, the art of the slow burn needs to come back. You mentioned before when the mask slips, but you know, you could have ripped the mask off a lot earlier, um, but instead you extend it and extend it. And then when the violence and the horror does come, it's, it's extreme but also understated. And it, it kind of often happens off the page or is presented off the cuff. Right. There's one part where without any warning, a character briefly references someone else's screaming and you get this sense of, oh God, there is this other thing going on. Were you ever inclined to throw more into that and make it more grisly and more an obvious horror climax?
1: I didn't want to because I want people like when they're thinking I, th- I know that like one of the ways that readers are going to have to realign their expectations or, or decide if they like the book based on this is because I know they're entering the novel waiting for that moment they're waiting for that moment where it's just so clearly and obviously bad and I was like I don't ever want to give them that because when I want them to finish when I, when they finish the book you know I just want them to feel like but wait it was never that bad. Like, I want them to feel the question even after the book is over. And at the end of the book, Lo is like, I miss it. Like, I, I, she feels like she lost something. I think once you strip that subtlety away, it becomes a story for the audience to go, these fools. I could have told them it would end like that. So I think if I had gotten too explicit, I would have given them more reason to just undermine the whole experience that brought them there.
0: I, I understand but there is a scene <laughs> with a boiling kettle. Yeah. That I mean, let's be clear about this. This is not a nice sedate novel. You know, there is a bit a boiling kettle comes into play and and I was like, oh god, that is that is a horrible thing to think about. Where the hell did you come with that from?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Where did that come from? Um this is this is the, I love when people ask me questions, I'm like, what was I thinking? And it's, I know I had a reason at the time, but I wrote that book a year ago love was obviously abused by his mother um I think s- uh, certain components of his abuse can be reasonably questioned though because I think after a certain point he started mythology myth- uh, why can't I say that word now you know what a word suddenly just disappears and it exists mythologizing like? thank you um he does that with his like his history with his mother. you know you can call it in a question but he wanted people to walk his path of suffering and he was burned and he was cut and he was yeah he had a lot of bad things happen to him so it was it was Kind of to bring him through or bring her through his like path of faith, as he said at the time, I don't know why I decided that was the abuse he endured and that was the abuse that he'd inflicted on others, but it traumatized you, it sounds like, so I think I made a right choice
0: yeah yeah i'm, I'm just I'm just doing it hanging that out there you've done a great job here of playing down the extremity of this book, but in the final, I would say fifty pages it it goes to some places, so you know it ramps um, up a little. <laughs> On, on the flip side, though, there is a a lovely moment when Low is asked why she writes. OK, because she wants to be a writer. That's the whole thing. Okay, she works in yeah. a magazine. She wants to be a writer. And she answers that if you tell a story, you get to be alive in someone else. And right. that writing feels like her greatest chance to be alive. So to risk a personal question, is that would that be anything like your answer to the same question if I was to ask you?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's an I mean, it's certainly it's going to be my legacy. That's uh, I don't have kids. I don't want kids. So I'm like, what What am I putting out into the world? I guess this is the mark that I'm leaving behind. And, and you know, stories live on. That's always something that I've liked about. Right. Like, the. it's so weird to say that, though, because the other side of me is like, I just want to upset people. I want to make them cry and hurt all day. But then I'm like, that's my legacy. And I'm, I'm alive in them and their pain. So
0: if someone was to read this book, what do you want them to take from it? How do you want them to feel?
1: Um,
0: do you want to devastate
1: them? Well, yeah. I mean, when I, when I wrote this book, I had to really, like, I had to take a hard look at my own vulnerabilities. I've never thought myself as impervious to the desire to belong. Like, I, I know the power of community and connections. Um, and when you dig in to understand, like, how easily exploitable that kind of fragility is, it, it shakes you up a little. So, you know what? I want to shake people up. I want them to. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of human frailty that people are inclined to reject, and that, and, and that's not only like doing a disservice to yourself. It's also a reaction that isolates and traumatizes people who do fall prey to those situations. So I hope that when people read this book, they see past the obvious villain. And consider like an environment and society that allows those villains to thrive and allows people to lose themselves and, and, and leaves them with nowhere to go when they find their way back. Like, what, what is your contribution to that? What is, you know, what was your reaction to this book? What did you expect and, and did it meet your expectations? And are you disappointed it wasn't sensationalized? And do you, do you feel the humanity in it? Why or why not? So I just want people to have an existential crisis.
0: To me, it is quite a bold thing and a, and, a, and a laudable thing to say you want people to be upset. Because it's one thing for a writer to say, I want to scare them or I want to horrify them or terrify them. Because that's a sort of transient thing. You know what I mean? Terror okay. maybe not. Terror can last. But but to say you want to upset somebody, you know, I I, I like that. But I'm, you know, macabre inclined. <laughs> I just think it's, it's quite a striking aim for a, a piece of art. So, yeah. Um, what's next for you? Do you have any plans yet for anything else down in the pipeline?
1: I'm trying to untangle my next novel. It's upsetting me. That's, like, how it goes. I start something, it gives me hell, it upsets me, then I work through it, and the end goal is to upset someone back. Just It's just a constant loop of upsetness.
0: And we're back to the spite. I always like to ask, can you tell us anything about the next novel?
1: Um, it's gonna be good it's gonna be no it's gonna be brilliant wait that's not what you're after uh it's i i hope that it's good i want i don't want to like give anything away plot point wise but i just hope it has another unique structure and and it plays with the uh, trauma and and again sense of self and and who we think we are and and who the world shows us we are
0: okay so in in roughly two years another existential crisis then
1: yeah count on it
0: (laughs) good to know good to know Okay, so before we finish, because I think we've fully excavated your novel there. Yes,
1: thank you. That was, like, intense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to ask you the questions that I ask each of my guests every week, if that's okay. Yes. As I always say, I want you just to kind of throw me the first thing that comes to mind. So, you good to go? Yep. Okay, question one. What was your gateway to horror or dark fiction?
1: Is it okay? It's okay if it was a movie, right? Like... Yeah, anything okay um, it, it's kind of like twofold it was like tremors did you ever see tremors with like Kevin bacon classic yes I saw that when I was five and it, I was too young and I I would it traumatized me and I'd lay in bed screaming at night that the tremors were gonna get me and and my mother banned me from scary movies for like the next few years and then scream came out and I was like I, I, I want to be part of this conversation because everyone was talking about it so it was like tremors and then horror and then scream. And then I could not look away from her. I loved it after that. I just, I couldn't get enough of being scared.
0: That's quite the combination.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. so weird.
0: I love Tremors. One of my favorite films.
1: It's so good. And it has the best bromance. Yeah, I love it.
0: It's a film marketed as a B-movie that is much better than its B-movie status.
1: The writing is so good. It like holds up. It never, it, it, you don't watch it and go, oh God, that didn't age well. It just, it's perfect.
0: Going back to books. If you could recommend one book to our listeners what would it be and why
1: the need by helen phillips have you read that
0: no i haven't heard of that one oh
1: my oh you should look at are you like you near a computer you should look up the like the uk cover has like a creepy deer's head that i think you just totally vibe with but it's about a, a woman who comes home or she's at home with her kids and there's somebody else in the house and it has it's like i cannot even begin to describe to you what this novel does but it it has the most scary opening that I've ever read in my life. When I get scared, my eyes water. So I was just reading this book with like my eyes were just watering and and I couldn't turn away. And I was like, this, this is, I can't breathe. My chest hurts. This is the most intense, terrifying thing that I've ever read. And then it does this complete 180 into something I, I can't even begin to ruin for you because the experience of this novel is just something you have to go through. But it starts with a woman who's at home with her kids and someone else is in the house.
0: I have heard of this novel. I remember The Guardian did a real big thing about it when it came out, and I remember it was something to do with motherhood.
1: Yes. If you ever read it, you'll have to tell me what you think.
0: So that's The Need by Helen Phillips. Okay, definitely will. That sounds great. I'll try and get her on the show.
1: <laughs> That'd be cool. Sorry. Okay, I'll stop turning this into the Helen Phillips fan hour, but she, like, truly is exceptional.
0: <laughs> no, it's fine. I love it. It's, it's, it's a compelling case you've made for it. <laughs> if you had one piece of advice for a fledgling writer what would it be
1: the moment you stop writing for yourself is the moment you stop writing for everybody else
0: oh i love when it's like a slogan i love when it fits on a (laughs) t-shirt there you go Don't, don't get me wrong, some people give me some beautifully nuanced, elaborate answers, but I love when it's something I can just write on a post-it. And basically, I'm going to put a photo of this on, on Instagram. I'm Every time someone gives me an answer, I boil it down, write it on a post-it note, stick it on the wall above my writing desk to try and pull me and propel me through this first draft of my novel. So that one, it's just a nice one to put on a post-it note. So I appreciate that.
1: Well, that makes me happy.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> um, no, Right, OK, now you can make me happy. My favourite question what scares you
1: spiders and failure
0: (laughs) again that would be a great t-shirt
1: i mean the spiders are terrifying i know they're just like out there trying to live their lives but they don't have to be so scary when they do it and failure is just i mean that sounds like such a trite answer but if i don't meet my own expectations i get it it makes me nervous i don't like it (laughs) it's terrifying
0: so yeah one one in an existential way one in a very 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 real way i'll I'll take that i i don't like spiders um i i can't go to antipodes because obviously the the spiders in australia have got tattoos so i can't i can't go there um my my scariest experience with a spider was actually in canada
1: oh no don't tell me that i live here what happened
0: i swear this is true i was Living on like, um, it was like a, a dog sanctuary in Kelowna in, in British Columbia. A place called the Spotted Spa in Kelowna. And if you're listening, Sheila or Megan or anyone, hi. And I, it was winter and we had like a wood burning stove and I went out to the, to the shed to get some wood, came back in, looked at my arm, felt a tickle and there was a, a sparrow on my arm and I, I knocked it off and it was a black widow.
1: Oh, I hate this story, Neil. That's a bad story.
0: I didn't think that Black Widows lived in Canada. I thought they were like tropical beasts. I thought I was safe. I thought it was too cold. And then I read up on Black Widows and it was like, if they bite you, you won't know they've bitten you because they numb the skin <laughs> when they bite you. And I, was like, I was on my own in the middle of nowhere thinking, right, at any moment it's going to keel over and die. And I made the mistake of ringing my dad and saying, I may have been bitten by a Black Widow spider. I'll ring you back in three hours to let you know. <laughs> And then and then my phone died. So he thought I was dead.
1: Oh, no. That's, that's funny, though. <laughs> it's terrible and funny. Oh, that reminds me of, I had, like, a bat in my house once, and I posted a picture of it on Twitter because I was like, it's so cute. And everyone's like, you'll get rabies. And you won't even know you have it because they bite you in your sleep, and you don't feel it. That's why Twitter is bad.
0: That's my number one fear. Rabies. Don't know why. There is no rabies in the UK.
1: Well, did you see it was Cujo, right? Cujo with the dog that... But
0: um no what it was my dad when he was in the army in my dad's quite old uh, and when he was in the army um one of his friends in north africa was bitten by a dog and died of rabies and my dad went oh into in some detail about the process um have you read paul tremblay's survivor song
1: no i haven't but it's on my list
0: so it's about a rabies thing that goes viral and becomes like human transmissible it was the first book I read for this podcast. And the, the, the oh, same really? week that I read it, I was bitten by a dog when I was out
1: running. Oh, oh my God. But, but you're still alive. You don't have rabies. And Trump's out of the White House. Like, these are all good things.
0: You're right, aren't you? Let's end it there. Trump's gone. I don't have rabies. Yay! <laughs> I, I have waffled a lot about myself there. Before we go, how can people find you on social media or find out more about your work?
1: They can visit my website at CourtneySummers.ca. They can follow me on Twitter at Courtney under or yeah, Courtney underscore S. And they can follow me on Instagram at SummersCourtney. It's all different names. My marketing people don't like that. It's three different names. And now I don't like it either because I had to think about them all. Yeah, but that's where they can find me.
0: Excellent. And I hope they do. And I hope they read all your stuff. And I hope they read the project. It's a great book. But all that remains to say is Courtney Summers, thank you for talking scared.
1: Thank you. This was
0: awesome. First things first, I was wrong about YA. Having read the project, I've had my eyes opened a little to the breadth and depth of the genre. I'm still not entirely convinced that there isn't a model to success for a lot of YA writing. A model that, you know, can curtail creativity a little bit. But you could say the same about a lot of genres. And as with all fiction, it's the outliers that do the cool stuff. And the project is straining at the edges of what YA can be. In a way that's convinced me that, one, YA can be much more interesting than I thought, and B, I'm going to open the show up to YA writers in future. Write to me, or tweet me. Tell me who's doing YA right. Who and what should I be reading to up my game beyond the Hunger Games? You can find me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Every day's a school day. So, what else is going on? Not much. <laughs> you know what's nice though? Not hearing about the President every single day. I have no idea what Joe Biden is doing right now or what he's really been doing since inauguration. And that's what it should be. Some of it is my general ignorance of day-to-day American politics, but it's also because Biden doesn't feel the need to tweet every damn thing he thinks. And it's so refreshing to feel my mind unpolluted by another man's ego for the first time in, in four to six years. As such, I'm feeling hugely optimistic about the future, even as the COVID shit show continues. We'll get through this... Another Day Dawns, and we'll all meet again to talk about books over a pint or a coffee. But that said, I also realise that as we enter the supposed end game of the pandemic, a lot of people are struggling more than ever. And if for whatever reason you're having a hard time, or if you feel you've got no one to listen to you, then I'm opening my Twitter DMs to anyone who wants to reach out. There are a few podcasts I've been listening to over the years. Uh, Some would be Last Podcast on the Left, which I mentioned to Courtney, or Wittertainment, which is the UK's flagship movie podcast. And I think of those shows as friends who are unaware that I exist. Obviously, I'm a lot smaller a deal than them, but please, if you're a listener, consider me a friend. And if you're having a tough time, reach out, and I'll do my best to respond to everyone. It's the very least I can do for... ...all that you've done for me in getting this show off the ground. Once again, that's TalkScaredPod on Twitter... ...or TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. As we go into February, it's Women in Horror Month. And I'm delighted to say that I've got four fantastic female guests lined up... ...to talk about their books. You can find out who they are if you scroll back far enough on my tweets but suffice to say that next week is Gemma Files, the only writer to give me not one, but two actual anxiety attacks via her short stories. Tune in for that one. It goes to all sorts of places. Until then, raise your hands, praise the leader, but don't turn into a cult. we have had enough of that. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.